0: You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. Last week, we started a two-part series called Love which is about exploring God's lo- mission of love and our invitation to join him. We talked about how love is the mission of God and the mission of God is love and how our lives are about receiving the love of God and responding by lover- loving others. Um, as the scripture, John twenty twenty one says, as the father sent Jesus, so he is sending us. And... Uh, It says that Jesus didn't come into the world uh, to condemn the world, but to offer us a gift, which is relationship with him and life. Um, But often, if we're honest, I want to jump in and say that, is that we have, uh, the church has some baggage when it comes to mission. So usually, or not usually, I shouldn't say usually, sometimes the church, it's not true usually, sometimes the church has Crossed out that little bit in that verse, and uh, where it says God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, um, but to save the, and they do the rest of it. And um, I just want to talk a little bit about some of those things because I think it's good for us to be honest about where we've been. So, this weekend uh, we celebrated Canada's 150th birthday, which uh, is actually the 150th anniversary of Confederation and when Canada became a nation. And while many are celebrating the peace, freedom, and wonderful resources this country has afforded us, um, the Indigenous peoples of this land who've been here for many, many years before, um, the freedom we have experienced has come at a great cost to him and to them and to these people. And uh, the problem is that the church has been complicit in some of this. So I thought I'd just start by looking at a few quotes, very short ones, that talk about some of the things that may affect our people's view about mission. So the church, the church's mission hasn't always been good news. The mission has always been good news, but it should say that the church hasn't walked it out as good news uh, all the time. So I'm just going to read a few things. Uh, So this is, about this is from the Papal Bull, which is basically a document that the Church in uh, in Europe. Uh, Made a decree, and so this is what happened when things were starting to move in terms of the explorers coming to to um, Canada. And it's that in 1493, the King and Queen of Spain asked Pope Alexander to issue a doctrine of superiority that would help Spain's explorers when they arrived in the new lands. The statement was called the Doctrine of Discovery. According to the Doctrine of Discovery, nations that were not Christian were not considered human beings and therefore could not own land. The indigenous peoples living on this land would be Put under the power of the Christian monarchs and, quote, unquote, that would, quote, unquote, discover their lands. So um, that's just a very short summary of one of the problems that was going on, where the church's posture in mission didn't look a lot like what we were talking about last week. Um, this is a quote about things that were happening in Quebec, which is another place where we have seen the church not necessarily having a proper posture in mission. A posture love um this is a woman a quote from a woman it says it was So she's talking about birth control and the church's influence on that. It says, it was cruel when you went to confession. It was not a small thing to say that you had used birth control, but I had to confess it. The priests would scold us. We would tell them, the doctor said that I mustn't have any more children. So she's talking about how she had health issues and she can't have kids, but uh, they didn't care. The baby would live even if the mother died. That's all they had to say to us. It wasn't right. And then more recently... You see a lot of this uh, in the media and I think this is the reputation that a lot of the church has around in North America especially I'd say Um, and all of us have stories uh, and or have heard stories or even witnessed firsthand the hurt caused by a church that has felt sent on a mission and I think and and have not done it in the right way. And so I think sometimes our fear of doing it wrong or repeating the mistakes of our past can keep us paralyzed from going deeper and risk living out what God actually intended, which is what we talked about last week. Um, So Simon talked a bit over a month ago about the story of Moses and uh, the fears and mistakes that he had on his journey which kept him in apathy for 80 years of his life before he finally embraced the mission that God had planned for him. And you can go back on the website and read his really great talk. Um, but we at believe that God has something different for us. So as we discover God's transformative love, he wants to let his love um, move through us and use ordinary people like us to bring, what Michael talked about earlier, holistic transformation um, and this transformation that he's planned for the world. And he wants us to be a part of seeing him change things from the way things are, like in reality right now in the brokenness that we see to the way he originally intended and created it to be. So God's original plan was different. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 20 says, um, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so this shows the weight of the mission of the church is that God is making his appeal through us. The sad thing is that the church has not necessarily looked like the way God has intended. And so uh, today I just want to dive into a story in scripture that speaks, kind of ties some of the various themes we've been talking about in the last while in the move series and the pray series um, and gives us an example of what a loving posture and mission can look like towards God and towards other people. So we're going to talk today about the story of Nehemiah. So who was Nehemiah? So I must confess that this is probably a message that you could do in like four parts. And because of what we're doing in the summer, uh, I'm going to generalize and summarize a lot. Um, So I apologize. Maybe one day we'll unpack it further. Um, But who was Nehemiah? So Nehemiah was an Israelite. Uh, He was part of God's chosen people. And he was not in Jerusalem at the time where his story starts. Uh, he's actually working as a cupbearer to a Persian king called Artaxerxes. I hope I got that right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those names can be hard at times. Yeah so, he's, yeah, so he's not in Jerusalem, which is the city where his people were, but he's serving as a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. So what's a cupbearer? We don't know a lot about cupbearing in our day and age, but basically a cupbearer, his job was that when the king was served wine, he was in charge of that process of the king being served wine and making sure basically that it was not poisoned and uh, he would sometimes have to drink it to test it. And so basically his main job was to keep the king alive at the potential cost of his own life. So though he was a servant, it was actually a very privileged position because the king trusted him, and therefore he had the ear of the king. Um, I don't know how many of you will uh, have watched Downton Abbey, but it made me think about Downton Abbey. (laughs) I like Downton Abbey, one of my guilty pleasures of the past. Um, but in that story, in that show, there is an aristocratic family and the, talks about the relationships with the servants and the aristocratic family. And it made me think about that because you see the intimate interactions between Mr. Carson, the head butler, and Mr. Crawley, who's like the head of the estate, and uh, it's interesting, because you can see that eventually, as trust is built, they have influence that others don't, and so they get to hear and influence decisions. So, although he was a servant, he actually had a privilege and an ear to the king. So, we're going to just dive right into the story. And we're going to kind of do it in some chunks. Uh, So Nehemiah 1, verse 2 to 3, it says, In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who escaped captivity, and about Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Um, The month of Chislev is about... Uh, November, December in the calendar that they're using. And the 20th year, meaning the 20th year of the king that he's working for, Artaxerxes. Um, And he was in Susa, the capital, which is like the capital of the Persian Empire, maybe in his winter home, some commentaries say. Um, And so his brother comes and he asks the question, what happened to the Jews that survived those who escaped it? the captivity and what happened to Jerusalem. So at this point in history, um, the Jews who were, God had made a promise to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be blessing and the nations will know God through you. But the Jews had messed that up and the Israelites had messed that up. And, um, so they were, had been in captivity in Babylon or by the Babylonians. Babylonians had taken them in captive and they were in what's called exile. Um, but there were, had been some that were coming back, given permission to give, go back to Jerusalem at that time and to rebuild it. Um, so they escaped the captivity and the, the Jerusalem had been in a process of starting to be rebuilt. Um, so Nehemiah was asking what's going on with the people in Jerusalem. So, where he is is about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and It's which on a map, it's like going from here to Toronto and then back and then back to Toronto, to put it into perspective. Um, and they didn't have train like we do or plane. So it was, a far, it was far away. So he basically asks what's going on. Um, so what's going on? Uh, They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So um, what is, why does that even matter? So Jerusalem, the people of Israel were in great, they had a lot of problems because of their captivity and what had gone on, and so the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. So if we may not think about this because we don't have walled cities, but what does a broken wall on a city mean for people? It basically means that they're very vulnerable to attack, that there's no way for them to build up their own economic means. There's no way they're always being raided. Like there's, there's no protection for the city. There's no way like they were basically a conquered people. And so, um, for us, maybe it's hard to picture that because we don't live in that world. But I think uh, I think we can all think of situations in our life that are kind of like that literally or metaphorically where for people groups or people that we know where, you know, what was meant to be is not there anymore and it's in shambles. And they're in... Uh, Pain and shame, not being not where God had originally called us or them to live. So, I just want you to think about it as we're talking, because maybe you don't identify with this ancient story, but I think there are a lot of applications for us here. Um, so what does Nehemiah do? How does so he receives this news? How does Nehemiah respond? Well, first Nehemiah inquired. So I, I'm sorry, I should back up, but the first thing I think as we have we enter into a posture mission is that we should inquire. So like um, he could have stayed in his position of being separated and and he wasn't close to the people like, but he had this understanding and memory that he was part of the people and he had to actually stop and take the time to ask the question. So I think that's the beginning of mission is to actually, um, you know, get outside of our own world and actually think, okay, what are the needs around me? Okay. So then what did he do? When he heard these words, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what Nehemiah did here was that he came close and let his heart be moved. So, so often, I think, when we see the brokenness in the world, we can do one of two things. We, I kind of talked about this when we talked about uh, cynicism to faith, but we can either stand at a distance and just pretend that these problems don't exist, or, uh, you know, we can do the opposite and become inundated, but with, oh my gosh, the problems in the world are so, so hard that I just, I think often we just don't want to face them, but... Um, So what Nehemiah did in this moment is he actually let the problem and let the need he saw come close to his heart. And he was moved by it. He didn't stay at a different distance. He let it affect him emotionally. And it's interesting because the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down for about 140 years already. Um, And in terms of years, like we can because of the birthday party for Canada, we can kind of identify with how long ago, like how many years ago did confederation happen? How many of you actually think about confederation? That's actually how distant in history it was. Like he, so he knew that his people were conquered, but this has been their, their reality for so long, but something in him moved and it led him to weep and mourn for days uh, before the God of heaven. And he let his heart engage. So the question I have for us is, are we letting ourselves be moved by a are we letting our heart be moved or are we staying at a distance we need to come close so then what happens I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps, commandment, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So, like I said before, we can either stay at a distance or sometimes... The problems. if we do let things emotionally affect us, the problems that are going on in the world, we can also go to the other way and just stay in despair and hopelessness and grief. But the thing that Nehemiah did, and we talked about this at length during our prayer series, is that he actually turned to God in prayer. So um, he prayed and he remembered God and his love. So um, so, uh, yeah, Michael... And Angelica both shared about prayer, and uh was talking about how uh, not to be anxious about anything but with prayer and petition, present your quest to God so he prayed and he he confessed and he knew who God actually was. he remembered the promises, and he also remembered God's original plan, so he knew that in Genesis God said that he had created people in his image and that he wanted his image to be displayed through the earth. And he didn't want for his people to stay in captivity. He didn't want them to just deal with these, this existence that was not his original plan. He wanted to see them restored. He wanted to see them reconciled into right relationship with them. So then what happens next? So then Nehemiah in his prayer says, both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments and the statutes and ordinances that you have commanded your servant Moses. So um, Nehemiah's next step was not to just like believe in God, but he took ownership that he was part of the problem and not above it. And I actually think that this is one of the key problems that church, we've had as a church and mission is that um, we forget so quickly um, where we've come from. We forget so quickly uh, how we've contributed to the problems of the world. And we can look at the world as this out there thing and, um, and become distant from it. But, but Nehemiah in this moment is able to say, I have sinned. My family has sinned. We've all offended you deeply and we've com- kept... We've failed to keep your command. And so he took ownership. He didn't stay as a victim and because he was victim to this too, but he actually took ownership and said, I'm part of the problem. And even though he was in a faraway castle with the king, he still said, I'm part of the problem. He had to choose to uh, to lay down his privilege and his situation because he wasn't living the reality that the people in Jerusalem were living and say, I'm part of this. And so um, I think even if maybe you and I are not in a place of privilege in society, I think we can so quickly forget the gift and the privilege it is to be in relationship with God. And how often do we sit at a distance and not think about the people around us that don't know God, and, and we sit in our fear, we sit in our anxiety, and we don't actually take ownership that we're a part of the problem, and we're eventually part of the solution, but being, saying you're part of the problem is the first uh, step. Uh, so he had, he owned, he was part of the problem, and he had a we mentality um, and he also admits the root of the problem that it was sin, that along with his ancestors, they were separated from God because they God had a great plan for them, but they they didn't they they decided to run away from relationship with him. So Nehemiah humbles himself and does that. And so then he goes on and he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So he continues in this prayer. And this time he's like, after he's owned that he's part of the problem, he intercedes for the other people that are in that situation, not from like, oh, I'm praying for these people people. Like he has just said, I'm part of this and he's interceding. And he's again, remembering the covenant that God had originally had for his people. And this covenant still applies today. And I think that sometimes we forget that like when we look around and we see our city or our world, we can forget that that covenant still applies today. That no matter how far away you or I, or any president or any mayor or any person on the street is, God's promises that if we return to him, he no matter how far they are, he wants to change them. And so, but that change starts with us. So what happens after this? Um, he says, he continues prayer and says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So who's the man? So Nehemiah, sorry, Nehemiah continues to pray in humility. Okay, that's the next thing. So who is the man? So in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? Can this be nothing but sadness of heart? So... He goes to the king, and um, he takes a risk. So the month, of, first of all, the month of Nisan is four months later. So Nehemiah spends four months in that period of grieving and mourning and fasting and praying, and he waits for on God, and he says, grant me favor, right? And so, uh, and that's something that he continues to do if you go through the whole story. Um, but he takes a risk here, so first of all, he risks being vulnerable in front of his boss. Like how many of you would go with tears in your eyes to your boss? Like even us, we can identify with how awkward that could be. But but this boss was a king too. So he's a servant and he's being vulnerable in his sight and being honest with him. And they had enough of a relationship. So he was close enough that the king just knew that something was up. And so it's just interesting thinking about that, how this guy, who's some Israelite, not in his own land, is in this king's palace with him, tasting wine. And the king's like, hey, are you okay? And, and so he takes a risk. Like, so what does he say? He's, well, first he says, I'm very much afraid. So it was a scary risk. Um, but he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what is it you want? So he actually is honest about the problem and he takes a risk. Like, how many of you would go to your boss and say, Hey, I need this because I want to leave my workplace and go rebuild a city? Like, <laughs> how many bosses would say yes to that? I'm sorry, I'm going to leave my workplace and Cupbearers aren't very easy to find because you have to actually trust someone enough to sip your wine and not let you die, right? So this is a huge risk. He's risking his job. He's risking his nice, comfy place in the palace. He's risking everything to leave his place of comfort and go to a place with a people that are broken and a place that is broken and a city that's been destroyed by fire. But... Um, But he knows that his privilege is a privilege, and he uses that privilege on behalf of someone else. And it kind of ties with, Angelica talked a while back about prayer, and he spent that time praying. First he prayed and grieved over what was going on in his heart. Then he prayed and grieved on behalf of his people, owning his part in it. So it's not like this came easy. He spent four months getting his heart to this place. But my question for us is how many of us actually go to that place or how many of us just look at the problems in the world or you know think about okay well you know I know indigenous people are upset about what's going on in the world and then they're just we're just so overwhelmed by all the things going on in Facebook that we don't even try to look into it, you know? Or we hear about the French English in Quebec and what the church has done in Quebec, and we're so overwhelmed by that that we don't even want to actually listen to people share what the pain has been. Why? Why are you at a distance? Or we distance ourselves and we're like judged, you know, judging people for things that we don't know, you know? But in this instance, Nehemiah, he starts in prayer, he leaves his place of purchase and he actually learns and he lets his heart be moved and then he goes and even risks his job on behalf of these broken, these people, broken people which he is a part of. So my question is what are we willing to risk as individuals and as a community? And we so quickly forget um, that people maybe like the king, that they're actually human beings too, that they're human beings, this king didn't know God, And I don't think, and uh, we forget that God is bigger than all of that. And he can actually um, use them as part of his mission. Uh, So he asked what, the king asked, what do you want? And then Nehemiah again prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases your king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Now, can you imagine this situation? Like he took a huge risk. He prayed. He was putting himself out there. But And because he had built trust with the king, the king granted his requests. And I think one thing that we can see here is that How did he approach the king? He comes from a place of humility and he's loving in his approach to the king too. He's been loving him by keeping him from being dead all these years uh, and deciding to take that place. But I think it speaks to us about our posture and mission as we go into the city even is like there are... Institutions, there are people, there are things that could potentially be obstacles to the mission that God has for us. But how do we approach them? Do we approach them with anger and like resentment, or do we realize that they are God's people too, and God loves them, and do we value the image of God in them, and actually take build a relationship and take a risk to to say, "Hey, this needs to happen." And granted, this scenario, uh, you know, the king says yes, partially because God. Well, I think all because God was in it. And he had some political reasons for saying yes, too. He wanted to like keep peace in the kingdom and stuff like that as well. And the people of Israel were, you know, they needed to keep the relations. But I think the point here is, is that often uh, we look at the world and the challenges And we don't realize that God's bigger than all of that. And he can work through really messed up kings or really messed up people to bring his plan about. And we need to have a heart of humility to God and to them so that they can be a part of that. Um, So Nehemiah takes a risk and includes the king in his plans and is given what he needs to take the next step. All right. So what happened next? So then Nehemiah, a few other things happened, but Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, it says, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining all the walls of Jerusalem. Yeah. You can do research on all the gates and why they're called that. (laughs) It's interesting. Uh, So uh, examining all the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down into gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get it, get through. I went through the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re entered through the valley gate. Okay. All of that doesn't make sense to us because we haven't been there, but well, I've been there, and it you can kind of I can picture it, but some most of us haven't been there, but basically, he's at the city and he's actually researching seeing what is going on in this city, so he's prayed, he's asked for favor, and by the way, I forgot to mention this if you've read this story if you haven't read the story, you don't remember at. Uh, he actually, after he asks for time away, he actually asks the king for the supplies to do the job. He asks him for letters to make sure he's safe on the journey through that 1,600-kilometer uh, uh, voyage. And the king is, cool, okay, I'll give you all that. And then he goes to Jerusalem, actually does it. And he, he before he talks to anyone else, he does the work and he takes responsibility to learn about what the people are facing and I think this is something another thing that we really miss out in mission is that we come in with our plan of action without actually saying listening and seeing okay what is the what are the problems in the city like how and or we put it up the burden on the people that are facing the problems to tell us all the things that are wrong with them and I think there is a place for that but I think that we there's a lot of stuff that we can learn on our own and take responsibility to learn and research or learn a language if that's the thing or learn um, what is the culture like, like learn um, where, who are the people that we're called to love and that's in and of itself a really loving act I think because everybody wants to be known, everybody wants to be cared about and not like we have no right to actually speak into something if we don't know what's going on. I don't think. And again, it's it's the we mentality that ne- uh, Nehemiah is taking out. He makes it his problem. Um, so then, it's only after that that he, after he does his research and sees what's going on, that he then says to the people, he says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious on me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they had said, let us start building. And so they committed themselves to the common good. So What was the fruit of all of this time, like of Nehemiah humbling himself before God, of Nehemiah humbling himself before the king? He took a risk on behalf of the people. He inspected the walls to see what was going on. He did his research. Like what people would just all of a sudden jump at being led by a cupbearer who's been living 1,600 kilometers away, who comes to their city and says, hey, let's rebuild the wall. Like there was something about Nehemiah that inspired the people. And I would argue that it's because of the work that he did to actually show that he was for the people, that he was a part of this problem. And he could only be a part of the solution if he recognized his role as being part of the problem. So his language here let us rebuild the wall let us you see the trouble we are in it wasn't like hey you've got problems and i know you know those people over there have problems it, he's like we've got problems let's let us rebuild the wall let us and so the people were like let us start building so they committed themselves to the common good so i'm not going to go further in the story i don't think but uh, if you look at when they started rebuilding, at the people that rebuilt that wall, like, Nehemiah wasn't a wall builder. Uh, most of the people, I don't think any of the people had were wall builders. They didn't have the craft of wall building. There were perfumers, there were uh, there were nobles, there were um, sons and daughters. Like, it's interesting, if you read Nehemiah 3 or 4, I don't remember which one it is. I'm sorry, I should know. But, uh, if you read it, um it's sons and daughters, they all have names, most of them, and who which family they're a part of. They're merchants, they're craftspeople, they're priests, they're Levites, they're people that didn't even live in Jerusalem. These are the people that Nehemiah rallies together and that they're the ones who start rebuilding the wall, which is super interesting because that's often how God works. Like he chose a bunch of rejected like people to be his first disciples. And he said, I'm going to teach you to fish for men. So this is God before Jesus came doing the same thing that he's been doing since the creation of the world, getting a diverse group of non-builders. And they ended up rebuilding the wall in only 52 days. Like, can you fathom that? This is with technology that is far less advanced than what we would have to build a wall. Even for me, I think, how the heck? I've been to Jerusalem, and I know how big it is, and that's a big feat. So there was something about the providence of God and the work that Nehemiah did and where pe- how desperate people were, and just the Spirit of God was on them, and they were able to rebuild the wall in 52 days after it had been destroyed for 140 years, like back for us, like back to, it's like John A. McDonald's like wall was broken and now we're gonna build it in 52 days, like, isn't that crazy? (laughs) And I think the other thing that we need to think about and that's neat about this story is that Nehemiah didn't come in with a plan of outside help to fix their problem, he called them to rebuild their wall. So they, this wall being broken caused shame and disgrace for them, but he rallied them together to see things change in their lives. He used the people that were there. And I think that's what's so key in mission is that There are already people that God has put in places that he wants to use to bring healing and reconciliation in the world. And how can we as the church not go in and say, I'm going to fix this for you, but how can we partner with what God is already doing and see people build for themselves? And I think this is important too, because I think often we can see people that are suffering as victims, but actually, no, they are children of God who have access to the same resources in the spirit as we do. Maybe there are practical resources that they don't have, which this is where we can join in and help rally. But I think in terms of honoring people and recognizing that they have dignity, they're not victims, like, but at the same time that they may need help. And I, but help, I don't mean that in like, I'm going to help you, but like they need a team working together and a diverse team is what God used. And I think a diverse team is what God wants to use today. And, in rebuilding the wall for in 52 days, they restored dignity for themselves. So, yeah, here's a picture. You can't read that, I'm sure, but it's a picture of the wall in a scheme, and it shows, like, all the different people. Like, if you read the, it, it talks about next to them. These, the perfumers were doing this next to them. The son of whatever was doing this next to them. And so it's very clear. It's like next, they were all next to each other. They were all doing their work. Um, Nehemiah, if you read the story, did face opposition every time the uh, the Israelites started moving forward. the opposition also increased, and it was because the people there were other people in the city, and they had a lot of control, and they didn't want the people to be back to where they were before because it would mean a loss of revenue for them, it would ruin their economy like they were stressed about this, and so the 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 opposition continued, but the thing that you see if you read through the book of Nehemiah is that every time opposition continued, he didn't respond to the threats. He turned back to God in prayer like he did at the beginning, and he trusted God and he reminded God of his promises and he listened to the people. So when they were getting stressed, he sometimes came up with practical ways to help relieve their stress. Like, you know, in in the end of chapter four, it talks about how they had the weapon in one hand and the building tool in the other, and, and he made plans. And I think that's one thing that's so cool about Nehemiah is that he wasn't, he saw The we talk about social and spiritual transformation. He saw both sides of it. He saw the spiritual side of it, but he saw the social and the practical side of it. And so Nehemiah being a very practical administrative guy, he still took time to get emotionally involved, spend four months praying and then, but then he made a plan. And so it's a beautiful story of the working of uh, God's spirit. All right, so we're gonna read this verse. So this is the verse that has inspired our name, Jawaharlith. And uh, this was, so Jesus uh, said this when he started his ministry. Now, keep in mind, I think I have a quote about this next. Well, I'm just gonna read it first. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery, recovering sight of, to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a quote I read. It said, even Jesus, the great problem solver, spent 30 years standing in the ditch of humanity before he flexed his problem-solving muscles and performed his first miracle. And I think that's something that is important for us to remember on mission, like... (laughs) We, again, our posture needs to be with. Jesus lived a human life, experienced the same temptations you and I did. He lived a human life and that was God's plan uh, to bring restoration and healing. So it's interesting when you look at Nehemiah's story, he's rebuilding the wall. Like the prophet said, like Jerusalem's gonna be a city without walls. So that wasn't God's original plan either. It was just a plan for that time. But God wanted the church to be a city without walls that would be welcoming the nations, that would see people reconciled. And Jesus was the answer to bring that about. But he spent 30 years standing in the ditch of humanity before he started solving the problem. And so how much more can we um, enter into humanity with the people that God has called us to be in relationship with and to reach? So this is the second part of that prophecy that Jesus quotes when he starts his ministry. It says that they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And so that promise was for the people of Israel and they took it literally, but that promise is also for us. And so... I guess my question to us is, is as we're going, are we gonna stay, like maybe some of you are scared as we're talking about this whole next step vision thing. Uh, and maybe some of you are super excited and, and wanting to go. Are we gonna have a posture like Nehemiah did, like Jesus did, where we're gonna start by listening, by praying, and then, and then not staying just in that and expecting someone else to be part of the problem, but be, taking leadership and actually saying, like, Rob shared this at the uh, intercession meeting when we were praying about this, but the, the scripture in Isaiah six, it says, here I am, Lord, send me. And in that scripture, Isaiah starts by repenting and, and seeing how he's part of the problem before he says, send me. So and it's just a challenge and encouragement to, to us that I think God wants us to be a part of this vision. He wants us to see our city transformed and he wants to use each person in this room with the skills, the abilities, the story, the relationships, the everything that you have, however tiny it might be. Like Nehemiah, sipped wine for the king and tried to keep him from not dying. It's it's significant, but in reality, he's just a servant, and he got into a palace position. And I think those are things that that God wants to use us ordinary human beings to see those things happen on the earth. So there's hope for us. Like, just like Nehemiah prayed, God's covenant promises are as true today as they were when he was praying. And the question is, are we going to turn to God? Are we going to be reconciled with God so that we can be reconciling people and see God's light and life and freedom and change come not just to individual people and in their hearts but to our city in this places of brokenness like you know, this week I spent a lot of time like just thinking and praying because when I saw the things that were going on with the open door and, you know, they they're, they had a space and the neighbors in Westmount aren't necessarily wanting them there. And I, I keep thinking through the complexities of life. You know, it's not easy. It's not like it's easy to stand from the outside and say, why don't you want them there? But, you know, people there have families too and, and it's not simple and I guess the thing, and then I was yesterday in Canada Day just reflecting again, like I, my friend, my indigenous friend who's a really good friend of mine, she kept asking me, "So, how are you celebrating Canada Day? What are you doing? And I knew it was a leading question because I've been with her in the journey of discovering what her, the people who been here for many years what they've been going through in the past and currently and she wanted to know if I was with her you know and so I've just been spending a lot of time praying and I think just thinking about God and his ministry of reconciliation and how he wants like he wants the indigenous people and Justin Trudeau and Mayor Coder and all the people at the open door and all those neighbors in in little Burgundy sorry and like all of them are his children. So how can we as a diverse people reach and love and be ministers of reconciliation and be ambassadors of God to them, not in the way it's been done badly, but in the way that God originally planned for it to be. And Jesus went first. This was, so Shirley and I went and uh, Dulce went to a blanket exercise, which is a way of learning the history of uh, of Canada, including the Indigenous history, and they had sent out, they had these pieces of paper that had this quote in it. It said, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time, but if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And this is an Indigenous activist saying this, and I think, especially if you're working with Indigenous people, but I think a lot of people who've been hurt by church, this is their attitude, because so often the image of God has not been honored in them. We've not treated everybody as a child of God. And so coming with this, I'm going to help you mentality, instead of being like, I'm your brother, I'm your sister, I'm a human being like you, let's together be liberated. There's so much we can learn from people that may have different experiences about God's image. And so how many times in the gospels does Jesus say, like, you know, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. We find God in the broken places. So... Although I'm sure this was motivated through some anger, I think there's truth in it that we can learn from. So if you haven't yet looked at the vision thing, I encourage you to go to jblmontreal.org vision and just take a look at where we're going because each of you has a part to play in it. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.